This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and today is going to be a solo episode because we are exhausted. It has been such a long week, and I guess I'm going to just go ahead. I didn't even plan on talking about this, but I'm just going to go ahead and talk about it because maybe it'll put things into a different perspective for our listeners. But we have just been like dealing with a lot of death around us lately. So not in regards to true crime. It's actually in regards to our personal lives. So Austin's best friend uh, lost his mom to cancer last week. And she was actually an avid listener of Mama Mystery, which just breaks my heart. Um, I lost my mom when she was 56 and our friend's mom was 56 also. And, you know, I just my heart just breaks for him and his family and they're all struggling with this. Um, so that happened last week. And then this week, Austin's grandma passed away at the age of 93. She had a very long and fulfilling life. Her name is Joyce. Um, I'm glad I got to spend some time with her, you know, in the beginning of our relationship. And then also towards the end, we got to be with her and hold her hand Um, and you know, it was just very eye opening. And then Austin's business partner lost his mom this week. Also, it's just been a lot of moms leaving us this week. And it's been really hard, you know, to carry all that weight and the pain that we're feeling for our friends. We, Austin and I both are fixers. We want to fix things for people. And these are just things we can't fix. And so we're trying really hard to just kind of be there for them and be present, but, Um, I just want to dedicate this episode to them. Um, Oddly enough, I didn't intend on doing this because today's episode is actually about a mom, um, but not in a good way. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know, guys, where like how we can connect these two in a positive way. But I do want to dedicate this episode to um, the good moms, the moms that we just lost uh, last week and this week. And yeah, without further ado, I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. So today's story takes place in New South Wales, Australia, where a mom was charged with the unthinkable. But at the end of this story, it will be up to you to decide if she was wrongfully convicted of a heinous crime or the victim of an undiscovered genetic mutation. So I really do want to hear your thoughts on this. I have had a few people recommend this story to me because they are outraged by it. Um, But I also see people online who are expressing their support of this woman. So I really do want to, I want to know your thoughts. I want to know if you've experienced something similar, if you know someone who has suffered from this same genetic mutation, but we're going to get into it right now. So Kathleen Megan Fulbig was born on June 14th of 1967 to parents Tom Britton and Kathleen Donovan. Tom was an immigrant hoist driver and petty criminal who went by the nickname Taffy. 
And as for her mom, Kathleen, I couldn't find much about her, but I did think it was interesting that Kathleen's mom was named Kathleen because I just don't think it's as common that we name daughters after their mothers. I feel like it's more common that we name sons after their fathers. So I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Maybe it's more common in Australia and I'm just not aware, but... Two weeks before Christmas in 1968, when Kathleen was almost two years old, Taffy stabbed his wife to death after allegedly becoming irate that she seemed to be neglecting the young toddler Kathleen. And a witness testified at the trial that after he stabbed her 24 times, he knelt down to her and said, quote, I'm sorry, darling, I had to do it, end quote. Before he turned to the witness saying that he had to kill her because she was going to kill his child. Kathleen's story fits the profile of early emotional deprivation. After her father was jailed for the murder, Kathleen was sent to stay with family who reported that they had difficulties with her, saying that she had severe temper tantrums, aggression, and crying fits. Well, no shit. She just lost both of her parents in a pretty traumatic way. So um, I feel like you kind of have to know that you're getting yourself into that whenever you take on a child who has went through, who has gone through something so traumatic. But either way, uh, Kathleen was then sent to a church orphanage and then later to a foster family. She was a picture-perfect child with curly blonde hair, and according to her foster mother, um, the young Kathleen really tended to keep her inner feelings to herself as she grew. Her father, Thomas, served 12 years before being deported in 1982 to Britain, where he essentially disappeared and had nothing to do with Kathleen. Growing up with her foster family, she really struggled to please her mom. And as she got older, her foster mom became more and more strict and controlling. And this is according to Kathleen. She couldn't go to the movies with her friends without a full interrogation by her foster mom. And then finally, exasperated by the heavy thumb of her foster mom, she left home and dropped out of school at age 15 and worked in a series of dead-end jobs before marrying 25-year-old Craig Fulbig. And within a year, she was carrying her first child, Caleb. Caleb was born on February 1st of 1989. He was born full term and he was a healthy baby boy, but within a few days, his parents noticed that he was a noisy breather and would stop breathing in order to feed. So a pediatrician diagnosed him with laryngomalacia, probably butchered that, but it's commonly known as a floppy larynx. Um, Interesting side note, my son had a floppy larynx. And anyway, it's something that babies typically grow out of. But on February 20th, Kathleen and Craig put Caleb to bed, but reported that he was restless and awake from about midnight to 2 a.m. He finally seemed to settle down, and when Kathleen went into his room to check on him around 3 a.m., he wasn't breathing, but he was warm, and they called 911 immediately. Unfortunately, by the time paramedics arrived, Caleb was gone. It was later determined that sweet baby Caleb passed away from SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, which is when a baby typically under the age of 12 months passes away unexpectedly for no apparent reason. On June 3rd of 1990, a little over a year after Caleb's death, Kathleen gave birth to another little boy that they named Patrick. This time, Craig stayed home to help Kathleen for the first three months of Patrick's life. 
Three days after Craig went back to work, he was woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of a blood-curdling scream. He ran to Kathleen, who was standing next to Patrick's crib. She said Patrick was coughing earlier in the night, but that around 4.30 in the morning, he was gasping for air. Craig pulled Patrick out of the crib and noticed that he wasn't breathing, but was still warm to the touch. Paramedics arrived around 4.45 in the morning, and they rushed Patrick to the hospital where he was in respiratory distress and given oxygen. While he was in the hospital, his condition improved, but two days after being admitted, he suffered from an epileptic seizure. A pediatric neurologist diagnosed him with epilepsy and cortical blindness. Craig has said that after this event, Kathleen had a very hard time coping. She was often angry and frustrated. She started leaving Patrick with her sister-in-law, Carol, and one of their neighbors so she could be alone a lot of the time. At one point, Craig found Kathleen's diary and found confessions that Kathleen wanted to leave Patrick and Craig and believed that they would be better off without her. So Patrick started spending even more time with Craig's sister. On February 13th of 1991, Patrick was about eight months old. Craig was at work when he got a phone call from Kathleen, and Kathleen was screaming, it's happened again, it's happened again. Craig rushed home, and when he pulled up, the ambulance was already there, so he ran inside and found Kathleen and Carol in Patrick's room. Patrick was in the crib, laying on his back, but Kathleen wouldn't let anyone pick him up. So Craig swooped Patrick up and tried to perform CPR, but his lips were blue. He was rushed to the hospital, but sadly, he did not make it. A doctor at the hospital determined that he suffered cardiac arrest, but couldn't determine the cause, and his subsequent autopsy didn't yield a cause either. After Patrick's death, Kathleen and Craig moved to a new area called Hunter Valley. It wasn't long before Kathleen was begging Craig for another baby, but Craig was very hesitant after losing two babies in a row. So he eventually agreed to have another baby, but only if a SIDS specialist could be involved in the baby's care. On October 14th of 1992, about a year and a half after Patrick's death, Kathleen gave birth to their first daughter, Sarah. She appeared to have a little sleep apnea, but the SIDS specialist that they brought in recommended a sleep apnea monitoring blanket. But the blanket would often produce false alarms, so Kathleen made the decision to discontinue using the blanket. And I will say, you know, I know there's a lot of products out there. Um, when my first born was born, which was like 10 years ago, they had that halo sleep mat. And it was like this plastic mat that you would put under the crib, and it was supposed to detect if there was like a sudden stop in movement or a sudden stop in breathing. It often would give us false, um, false alarms. And it was terrifying. So there did come a, a time when he got older that I did away with that, uh, little plastic mat. I can't remember what it was called. And I'm sure that it is useful. Um, you know, a lot of these products are sold to women who are very nervous about their children, understandably so, because you hear horror stories like this. But then when it's producing all these false alarms, it's just creating even more anxiety on top of the anxiety you already have. So, you know, at this point in the story, I could kind of see, you know, how someone from the outside, not knowing about her past or her other children, would see that or hear about it and maybe not, you know, think that there was a red flag. 
But just a few days later, after she stopped using that sleep apnea blanket, on August 29th of 1993, Sarah was 10 months old at the time, and she was having a hard time settling down for bed. Kathleen got frustrated and let Craig put Sarah to bed. At around 1 a.m., Craig woke up for a moment and noticed that there was a light coming from around the bedroom door, and Kathleen and Sarah were not in their bedroom. Sarah's crib was actually in their room, but Craig noticed that she was not in it. He drifted off back to sleep, but was awoken to Kathleen screaming. He saw Kathleen standing at the door, but Sarah was lying in the crib, warm and not breathing. He called 911 and tried performing CPR, but to no avail. Sarah did not make it. Her autopsy revealed small abrasions near her mouth. Her lungs showed petechial hemorrhages, minor congestion, and edema, all consistent with death by asphyxiation. However, despite these findings, her cause of death was determined to be from natural causes. I have no idea how. I know you're probably listening to this screaming, how? How on earth? I don't know. I don't know. It was a huge fail. This naturally took a toll on Kathleen and Craig's marriage. The pair split up, and then they got back together multiple times. But a few years later, they were back together, and Kathleen insisted on trying one more time for a baby. Laura was born on August 7th of 1997. She was monitored very closely and tested extensively. She had a mild sleep apnea, but that was it. No genetic, biochemical, or metabolic disorders. A special sleep monitor was installed, but again, returned a lot of false alarms. So again, Kathleen stopped using it, and Craig confronted her about it. She insisted she was keeping a close eye on her every night, but the false alarms were driving her crazy. As time went on, Craig began to notice a change in Kathleen. She seemed despondent and started spending more time at the gym and out with her friends. She also started showing aggression towards Laura, often getting frustrated with her, even to the point of being physically violent. On March 1st, 1999, Laura was almost two years old and Kathleen brought her to the gym. And then after they left the gym, they went to Craig's place of employment around lunchtime. They left around 1130 a.m. to head home. And at about 1214 p.m., 911 received a call from Kathleen hysterical because her daughter wasn't breathing. When they arrived at the house, Kathleen was performing CPR on Laura. She was warm but had no pulse, and the paramedics tried to resuscitate her but were unsuccessful. Laura was gone. Her autopsy revealed that she had a mild case of myocarditis or inflammation of her heart muscle, but they did not believe that it caused her death, so the formal finding was undetermined. Craig, at this point, is completely shattered, of course. He'd lost four children in 10 years, and his marriage at this point was irrevocably broken. So they separated, and Kathleen moved out. As she was in the process of moving out, Craig was kind of working on the house, getting it in order, and he came across some of Kathleen's personal journals that she had left behind. Written in those journals absolutely devastated him, and he immediately turned the journals over to police. Today's episode is sponsored by Kitsch. Game changing. That is what Kitsch's biggest fans say about its time-saving beauty essentials for hair, skin, and body. 
Are you ready to change your beauty game? Whatever your budget, your skin type, your hair type, Kitsch believes that you deserve little indulgences at affordable prices, morning, noon, and night. Started in 2010 by selling hair ties door to door, literally just hustle and a dream. Kitsch is self-funded, female founded, and now carried in over 20,000 retail locations. Their best sellers include satin pillowcases, caps, and eye masks. Satin is vegan and cruelty-free, and they are so great for your hair and skin while you sleep. Now listen, on the side, I do a little bit of hair. I Before this, I was a hairstylist, so I can attest to the fact that satin and silk pillowcases are the best for your hair and your skin. And I love having a satin pillowcase. It is truly a game changer. I've noticed a lot less breakage on my ends. I usually sleep um, face down. And so I have my head, you know, turned to the side. And, you know, if you are a stomach sleeper or a side sleeper like me, you might notice that whatever side you typically sleep on, you get the most hair damage if you're not taking care of your hair or using a satin pillowcase. So trust me, there is a science behind it. I don't know how to explain it, but they do work. They also have rice water shampoo bars that could help with overall hair growth and density. And then my personal favorite is the rosemary scalp oil, and that helps support scalp health and hair strength from root to tip and so much more. You guys, I've talked about this before. I know you are probably sick of hearing it, but if you don't have it yet, why not? It smells so good. My scalp has never felt better. I love this product. I, I don't know what else to say about it other than that. I absolutely love it. And I recommend it on my social media. I recommend it to my friends today. Actually, I was walking through the zoo with my friend Claire with our kids and I was telling her about the rosemary scalp oil because it smells so, so good. It literally smells like something that you would get at a spa. The oil is so light and it just feels so good on my scalp. Um, you're really supposed to use it like 10 minutes before you wash your hair, but I love to just leave it on because it smells so good. Right now, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com slash mama. That's right, 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, which is spelled M-Y-K-I-T-S-C-H.com slash mama, M-A-M-A. One more time, it's mykitsch.com slash mama for 30% off your order. Okay. Run. Don't walk. Get yourself that rosemary scalp oil. Get it on a subscription. Don't say I didn't tell you. Kitsch. In an entry on June 3rd of 1990, the day her second child, Patrick was born, she wrote, quote, this was the day that Patrick Allen David Fulbig was born. I had mixed feelings this day, whether or not I was going to cope as a mother or whether I was going to get stressed out like I did last time. I often regret Caleb and Patrick only because your life changes so much. And maybe I'm not a person that likes change, but we will see. End quote. On June 18th, 1996, before she got pregnant with Laura, she wrote, quote, I'm ready this time and I know I'll have help and support this time. When I think I'm going to lose control like last times, I'll just hand baby over to someone else. I have learned my lesson this time, end quote. On December 4th, 1996, she found out she was pregnant and wrote, quote, I'm ready this time. 
but have already decided if I get any feelings of jealousy or anger too much, I will leave Craig and baby rather than answer being as before. Silly, but will be the only way I can cope, end quote. On January 1st, 1997, she wrote, quote, another year gone and what a year to come. I have a baby on the way this time. I'm going to call for help this time and not attempt to do everything myself anymore. I know that was the main reason for all my stress before and stress made me do terrible things, end quote. On February 4th, 1997, she wrote, quote, still can't sleep, seem to be thinking of Patrick and Sarah and Caleb, makes me generally wonder, maybe she meant genuinely, wonder whether I am stupid or doing the right thing by having this baby. My guilt of how responsible I feel for them all haunts me. My fear of it happening again haunts me. What scares me most will be when I'm alone with baby. How do I overcome that, defeat that, end quote. On October 25th, 1997, Laura was about two months old when Kathleen wrote, quote, I cherish Laura more. I miss her, as in Sarah, yes, but am not sad that Laura is here and she isn't. Is that a bad way to think? I don't know. I think I am more patient with Laura. I take the time to figure out what is wrong now instead of just snapping my cog. Wouldn't have handled another like Sarah. She's saved her life by being different, end quote. Four days later, she wrote, quote, felt a little angry towards Laura today. It was because I am and was very tired. She doesn't push my buttons anywhere near the extent that Sarah did. Luck is good for her is all I can say, end quote. A few days after that, she wrote, quote, lost it with her earlier, left her crying in our bedroom, had to walk out, that feeling was happening, and I think it was because I had to clear my head and prioritize, as I've done in here now. I love her, I really do, I don't want anything to happen, end quote. On November 9th, she wrote, quote, Craig has a morbid fear about Laura. Well, I know there's nothing wrong with her, nothing out of the ordinary anyway, because it was me, not them. With Sarah, all I wanted was her to shut up, and one day she did, end quote. On New Year's Eve, Kathleen wrote, quote, getting Laura to be next year ought to be fun. She'll realize a party is going on, and that will be it. Wonder if the battle of the wills will start with her and I then. We'll actually get to see. She's a fairly good-natured baby. Thank goodness it has saved her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned, end quote. On January 18th, she wrote, quote, I've done it. I've lost it with her. I yelled at her so angrily that it scared her. She hasn't stopped crying. Got so bad, I nearly purposely dropped her on the floor and left her. I restrained enough to put her on the floor and walk away. Went to my room and left her to cry. Was gone probably only five minutes, but it seemed like a lifetime. I feel like the worst mother on this earth. Scared that she'll leave me now, like Sarah did. I know I was short-tempered and cruel sometimes to her, and she left with a bit of help. I don't want that to ever happen again. I actually seem to have a bond with Laura. It can't happen again. I'm ashamed of myself. I can't tell Craig about it because he'll worry about leaving her with me. Only seems to happen if I'm too tired of her moaning, bored, whiny sound drives me up the wall. 
I truly can't wait until she's old enough to tell me what she wants, end quote. Detective Sergeant Bernard Ryan was assigned to investigate Laura's death. He could have just chalked it up to another unexplained phenomena like the deaths of her other children, but something in his gut told him to explore other potential avenues. He conducted interviews with Craig and Kathleen, and when Craig told him about the diary entries, he admitted it made him feel physically ill. He also admitted that he had a suspicion about Kathleen, but didn't firmly believe in that suspicion until he found those diary entries. It took two years to build a case that prosecutors could try in court. And on April 19th of 2001, Kathleen was arrested at her home and charged with murdering her four children. The prosecutor argued, quote, while each individual child's death had not raised much concern, their collective deaths could only be attributed to suffocation. And the circumstances surrounding the deaths were not consistent with sudden infant death syndrome. Each child was found face up. They were still warm when they were found. And in two cases, there were signs of life, end quote. Professor Bayard, a specialist forensic pathologist called in the defense's case, gave his professional opinion as to the diagnosis of Caleb's death. He said, quote, with Caleb, I would say the cause of death was undetermined. And the reasons for that, there are several. One is that I don't have the death scene examination. The second is that the brain wasn't examined, so I don't really know whether there was any pathology in the brain. And thirdly, there is an issue of his voice box. He was said to have a floppy voice box, end quote. Professor Bayard was of the opinion that there were no positive medical or pathological signs of suffocation. To say that the cause of Caleb's death was undetermined did not imply that SIDS was excluded as a possible cause. Melbourne criminologist Professor Ken Polk says that mothers who kill their babies tend to fall under four main categories. One of the most common is the typically young mother who kills her baby within the first few minutes or hours after birth, never having accepted the fact of her pregnancy. We've all heard that myth or story of the secretly pregnant teenager at prom who dumps her newborn in the toilet and then hurries back to the dance floor demonstrating this dissociative response. And we saw this in episode 22 of Mom and Mystery with Brooke Schuyler Richardson, who hid her entire pregnancy, gave birth at home, and then buried the baby in her backyard. And more recently, we saw it with a girl, I believe her name is Alicia. I haven't really looked into the story, but all I know is that she allegedly hid her pregnancy, although I don't know how anyone with eyes didn't realize she was pregnant. Um, Anyway, she was a high school student who, quote, hid, end quote, her pregnancy and then locked herself in a hospital bathroom while she gave birth to this baby after complaining of severe abdominal pain. And then put her baby in the trash can and one of the maintenance workers from the hospital found the baby in the trash can and he was gone. Um, So I guess, you know, that would fall under those, that category. But then there is the suicidal mother, usually isolated and despairing after a relationship breakdown who can't imagine her child surviving without her. And murder in this context becomes this curious form of altruism, Polk says. One example that comes to mind is Lindsay Clancy, although I think her case is actually more one of severe mental illness 
than a form of altruism because I know she argued that she felt like her kids were going to be better off this way. Um, but I think it, I think it has more to do with her severe mental illness. And I'll touch on that in a moment. Rarer cases involve mothers and often stepfathers who dish out severe physical punishment in an attempt to control their children. Mothers in such battered children cases believe that they are administering tough love and then fail to understand their violence as dangerous. Mothers affected by psychotic disturbances, those who hear voices urging evil acts, are another small group like Lindsay Clancy, or even Andrea Yates. We haven't done a story on Andrea Yates, but she was sentenced to at least 40 years in prison for drowning her five children in her bathtub. While childbirth is the spark for such postpartum psychosis, only one in 600 women are likely to be afflicted. However, I still feel like that's kind of high in contrast to the 14% affected by postnatal depression. Obviously, this is a more severe form of postnatal or postpartum depression. Um, This is postpartum psychosis, takes it a big step further, but I still feel like it's more common than we realize. And then there are more obscure subcategories, which are mothers suffering from Munchausen by proxy syndrome. We covered the case of Dee Dee Blanchard in a Mama Mystery um, exclusive episode, Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose Blanchard. But um, Munchausen by, by proxy is essentially this mental illness where a mother or caretaker inflicts illness on their child to gain attention for themselves. These mothers often seem to be really hungry for sympathy or attention, maybe financial gain. I don't know. There seems to be a lot of morbid, you know, reasons as to why they, you know, act the way that they do. But regardless, the trial, the deaths of the full big children failed to attract suspicion, partly because the family moved around regularly and changed doctors and hospitals for the births of each child. But also, when the autopsy results came back, the causes of death, which was SIDS for Caleb and Sarah, and then epilepsy for Patrick, were not really regarded as unusual. But Laura was considered too old to have died from SIDS, and when the cause was deemed undetermined, the coroner ordered a police investigation. At her trial in 2003, she barely had anyone on her side. Her husband had left her long before the trial began, understandably so, and the only people who gave evidence on her behalf were three women that she had met at the gym. The prosecution alleged that she had deliberately smothered the babies in an act of frustration and anger, as evidenced by those journal entries where you can tell she is all but just directly admitting that she doesn't have the patience for her children. A defense witness, Professor Peter Fleming, who has been awarded the CBE for his research into infant death, said all the evidence suggested the children died because their bodies could not metabolize properly and they became very ill while appearing to be well, especially in the case of Laura, who would have been too old to pass from SIDS. The defense argued that she had myocarditis and that any other evidence like her journal entries was purely circumstantial. Her trial lasted seven weeks, and on May 21st of 2003, Kathleen was found guilty of three counts of murder, one count of manslaughter, and one count of maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm. 
On October 24th of 2003, she was sentenced to 40 years with no possibility of parole until she served 30 years of her sentence. Outside the courthouse, Craig Fulbig broke down saying, quote, my humble thanks go to 12 people whom I have never formally met who today share the honor of having helped set four beautiful souls free, free to rest in peace finally. But this is not the end of the story. On January 1st of 2021, Kathleen was transferred to a new prison where she was severely beaten by other inmates due to the nature of her crimes. A few months after her transfer, a petition was signed by more than 100 scientists calling for the NSW governor to pardon Kathleen due to new and compelling scientific evidence to explain the cause of each child's death. Genetic evidence showed that at least two of the children had genetic mutations that predisposed them to sudden cardiac death. They concluded that the CALM2, so C-A-L-M-2 mutation carried by Kathleen and her two girls altered their heart rhythm and made them susceptible to sudden death, especially if it was exacerbated by a secondary illness. Caleb and Patrick, however, each carried two genetic mutations that have been linked to early onset lethal epilepsy in mice. So after 20 years in prison for killing her four children, Kathleen was pardoned and released from jail on June 5th of this year, which was like two weeks ago. Now, I'm going to just tell you how I personally feel about this, and I want to hear your comments. I want to hear how you feel about this case. I have respect for science. I do. I think that you know the logical, analytical side of my brain respects and appreciates science, okay? But in the case of Kathleen Fulbig, I have a really hard time believing she did not have something to do with the death of her children, and here's why. I had a little cousin who passed away from SIDS at eight months old. Um, his family was completely devastated, his mom and dad. I mean, we all were devastated, but I can't even imagine the insurmountable pain that his parents felt after losing him. And I just can't even imagine them writing in a journal after he passed. His name was Logan. I can't even imagine after Logan passed, them writing about him in the past tense in any type of negative light saying, you know, that he didn't, they didn't feel a bond with him like they do with their, their subsequent children. In that journal entry on October 25th of 1997, she literally says, quote, I cherish Laura more and I miss her as in Sarah. Yes, but I'm not sad that Laura is here and she isn't. Is it that, is that a bad way to think? I don't know. I think I am more patient with Laura. I take the time to figure out what is wrong now instead of just snapping my cog. Wouldn't have handled another like Sarah. She saved her life by being different. And then four days later wrote, felt a little angry towards Laura today. It was because I am very tired. She doesn't push my buttons anywhere near the extent that Sarah did. Luck is good for her is all I can say. And then the most daunting one, in my opinion, the November 9th entry where she says, with Sarah, all I wanted was for her to shut up. And one day she did. I mean, how do you write about your deceased child like that if you didn't have anything to do with her death? That one just really 
I, I, it seals the deal for me. And then the one that followed that on New Year's Eve where she wrote that, you know, Laura was a good-natured baby. Thank goodness it has saved her from the fate of her siblings. I think she was warned. I think she was warned. Warned about what? You know, I know that her defense team tried to argue that the journal entries were circumstantial, maybe even hearsay because they were just written journal entries. But I think they are very, very telling. And I can't fathom a mother who has lost her child in a innocent, natural way, who writes about the death of their child in such a morbid, disgusting, insensitive way that lacks literally any compassion for the children you've lost. Not just child, children. So I don't know. I mean, I believe in science. I do. But in this case, I don't think that any genetic mutation they may or may not have had was the cause of their death. You can't convince me that she didn't have something to do with it. Also, the fact that both that there were two babies who were found warm. How is it that just so coincidentally, you happen to find them the, the moment they've stopped breathing? So they're still warm, but they're not breathing. And you just happen to find them in that instant. I just, I have a really hard time wrapping my brain around that. And accepting that as any type of reality. So I don't know. I know she's got supporters out there who believe in her innocence, but I don't. But I do want to hear your thoughts. I know she's got some supporters out there. So if you, uh, if you're on either side, if you believe she's innocent or if you believe she's guilty, I want to hear your thoughts on this. So if you're listening on Patreon, comment on the episode, comment on Instagram, or you can DM me if you want to stay private. But that's all I have for today. Mama. <laughs> Mystery out. He snuck in just to do the outro. Thank you, Austin. I love you so much. Bye.